Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In today's podcast, we've got three very exciting and diverse authors who have all written adventure stories, from medieval crime and Bronze Age gods to ancient fairies. So what is it about action that readers and writers find so appealing? Perhaps it's the escape from reality and delving into the strange and unknown, or following the journey of the characters, the intrigue and the suspense. First up to answer these questions is Karen Maitland, author of the historical thriller The Gallows Curse, and most recently, Falcons of Fire and Ice. Next, we have Jacqueline Wilson, who will be talking to us about her retelling of E. Nesbitt's classic tale, Five Children and It. And then we have Michelle Paver, author of Gods and Warriors, who will be telling us all about the adventures she went on to research her book. We'll be ending with an extract from the audiobook edition of Gods and Warriors, read by the actor Toby Stevens. So first up, here's Karen Maitland, talking to us about her latest book, The Falcons of Fire and Ice. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we've got Karen Maitland in, author of Falcons of Fire and Ice, which is out now. Karen, could you just tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, the book's set in 1564 in the time of the Inquisition in Portugal and the Reformation in Iceland. And it's about um, the daughter of a royal falconer. When the falconer is arrested on a charge of murder by the Inquisition, she has only one way to save his life, and that is to try and ransom it by giving the king two white gyre falcons, rare white birds, which can only be found in northern Europe. And so she very bravely gets on a boat and tries to get to Iceland, in in effect, to capture these birds. Now, that's a very dangerous thing in and of itself because the birds were owned by the Danish royal family and to try and take a wild bird from Iceland was a capital offence. But what Isabel, the daughter, doesn't realise is that the Inquisition have actually sent somebody with her to make sure that she never returns alive. Wow, it sounds uh, really dark and really thrilling, actually. It is very dark, yes. (laughs) Do you think there's a reason that you're really interested in that particular period of history? I was really drawn to it by the date more than anything. I I was reading a little bit about the Inquisition and suddenly realised that that came to a head at the same time as the Reformation in Iceland. And there were very dark periods in the history of both countries. And I think it it automatically makes for a very good action thriller when you know that people can be arrested at any time, that there's no hope of appeal, that there's no proper trial or anything like that. So everything is heightened because it is a matter of life and death and a very terrifying time to actually live through. And I can imagine you had to do a lot of research for that. Um, What did some of that research involve? Well, I actually spent time in Iceland and I descended into a cave which is right on the volcanic fault. If you'd seen the BBC or the television programme about the volcano watch, you will actually have seen the volcanic fault on Iceland which was the one that was responsible for um, disrupting all the air traffic (laughs) a little while ago. But there is an amazing cave there which you descend into vertically and it has um, an underground lake which is hot. And for generations, ever since Viking times, people have swum in this lake. In fact, people gave birth in the lake. It was the original water birth experience (laughs) for the Vikings. We didn't invent that. But 
when I went down there about 20 years previously, people had been swimming in this lake and they had just got out of it. And all of a sudden, a jet of steam shot up to the roof and the water had risen in seconds to 200 degrees centigrade. So they would have been boiled alive if they'd been in there. And the water was cooling when I was there, but it was still too hot to put your hand in. But I think it was such an atmospheric place. It had all these, it, you know, it was full of mist and dark shadows. And people had hidden down there for years um, in fear of their lives at times of persecution. And you could almost imagine the ghosts circling round you as you were in this cave. So I thought, I've just got to write about this. And in the book, Isabella's fate actually lies in this cave because the cave contains another secret, which is even more deadly than the lake itself. Wow, blimey, that sounds so atmospheric already. <laughs> and um, I think the story of how you became interested in medieval writing is really interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I used to live up near the um, North Sea Ferry Terminal, so I frequently went across to Belgium. On one of the visits to Belgium, I went to the Beganage on the outskirts of Bruges, which was the ancient medieval city of women, where only women lived. And it was something that I'd never heard of at school, I'd never been taught about. And when I went to the Beganage, I asked who the Bagans were, and I was told they were a kind of nun, but they didn't sound like any nun I'd ever come across. They were very feisty. They started hospitals and schools, many of which are still going today. And they lived completely self-contained lives, but they didn't take any vows, and they came and went as they pleased. When I went to the cathedral, I was told, and I tried to ask about the Baganage there, and I said, who are the Bagans? And they said, they're all prostitutes. And I thought, wow, <laughs> there is definitely a story here. <laughs> um, and I came home and I started to do the research on it. And I discovered that thousands of women had actually joined these organizations in the Middle Ages and had just been written out of history. And when I started to research it, I was told by historians that no Baganages had ever been set up in England. But then um, local people doing local history on their own towns began to uncover evidence that they had been set up in England, but they just disappeared without trace. And so that really sparked my interest in the whole medieval thing. And it's really interesting because all your novels are like these really amazingly well-researched historical novels, kind of medieval, early modern. Do you feel like because you've become so successful with that writing that you're in a way committed to that genre? I feel very committed to the historical thriller genre as a whole, but I've been very fortunate in that I do dodge around a little bit in history. Um, I don't write series books, I write standalone novels. So I'm able to go to any period in the medieval history that really fascinates me. And one of my starting points for a novel is always to try and find something that's happening in the news now and then to go back into medieval times and think, when has this happened before? Um, with The Gallows Curse, which has recently come out in paperback, I was actually reading a magazine um, and I came across an article. It was one of those true life magazines which sort of says, you know, my daughter gave birth to a hamster, that kind of thing. <laughs> and in the magazine, it said that a, a woman um, who had had a transplant, an organ transplant, 
thought that she was beginning to take on the personality of the person who had given her the the organ. It was an anonymous donation. And I thought, well, when has this happened before? Well, obviously, they didn't have organ transplants in the Middle Ages. But one of the things that they did have was sin eaters, people who would go around and eat the sins of people and take their sins on their souls without knowing what they were taking on. And I thought that's a very similar kind of thing. What would happen if somebody was tricked into doing this and began to experience the memories or the personality change of the person that they had actually taken on? Um, So I think one of the great things about the Middle Ages is that there are so many parallels to our own modern times. The same kind of climate change, pandemic diseases, the same kind of wars that we're repeating now the same kind of issues over women's rights and all of that kind of thing. And so it's sort of endless. You could go on writing about it forever and never exhaust it. And it's such an exciting time um, because you've got the wars, you've got the imminent death. Death can strike at any time. You've got a very swift justice system in many senses in that there's a wonderful pub in Wales where they had the medieval court in the top of the pub, in the top of the inn, and they had the gallows on the stairs halfway down. So if you were sentenced to death, you were actually could be executed within five minutes of the sentence being passed, Um, which, you know, there was no court of appeal or anything like that, which does actually, if you're writing a novel, um, give that kind of extra um, excitement to it because you realise everything is really a matter of life or death. And uh, I think... Your books are so exciting and um, they are really adventurous and thrilling. Do you think you've kind of gone for such um, action books? You've had quite an adventurous life yourself. Yes, I have because I've actually lived in war-torn countries and lived with a lot of countries that are undergoing terrorism. I've got that kind of thing in my system. And I think that also means that you have an understanding of the effects that that war and terrorism and imminent death actually have on people. And human nature doesn't change. You know, we we react in the same way as our medieval ancestors do to threats and to fear. It's it's actually quite frightening that we haven't improved, that we still (laughs) behave in exactly the same way. But I think, yes, in many senses, that does allow me to write about it with... I won't say authority, but with some understanding of what genuine fear is like. Um, Having lived in Nigeria um, in a situation without electricity, you were lying in the dark at night listening to the noises of of people trying to break in or animals prowling around the house and realising that you've got no telephone, you've got no means of summoning help. In fact, there were no emergency services. And that was exactly as it was in the Middle Ages. And you begin to realise just how deep that fear can become and how terrible it must have been for people in the past. Because, you know, nowadays we can switch on the light and go and investigate. If you've only a candle, you know, you, you, you can't find the means of lighting it. It is a pretty terrifying situation. And I feel that I can portray that with my characters because I've lived that. Definitely. I mean, they, the whole book is so immersive. Well, all your books are. The characters are so real. I think that, that really comes out. Thank you. And thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. That was Karen Maitland, author of The Falcons and Fire and Ice, which is out now in hardback. 
Next, we have Jacqueline Wilson. Hi, listeners. I'm Sarah. I'm sitting here with Jacqueline Wilson, author of her new book, Four Children in It. How are you this morning, Jacqueline? I'm fine, thanks, Sarah. Great. And and can you just tell us a little bit about Four Children in It and the inspiration behind it? Well, when I was young, my favourite book was E. Nesbitt's Five Children and It, where these children meet up with a very grumpy, magical sand fairy who grants them wishes. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we bury this Samyad for hundreds of years and then redig him up and modern children can actually discover him and see if he'll still grant wishes for them. Yeah, and it is amazing. The book itself, you can tell that you've really modernised it and the wishes themselves are completely different to the ones made in five children in it. What was your inspiration behind the wishes? Well, I thought, what would children nowadays wish for? And I'm pretty certain that lots would simply wish to be rich and famous. And I wanted to have fun with this so that sometimes, you know, it's it's like all your wishes can come true at once in that one of my girls, Smash, wants to be a singer. So she, she has a gig at the O2 Arena. Another girl is much more quiet and bookish and loves writing. So I have her being a children's author still at the age of about 10 or 11. I have a little boy who likes making chocolatey crispy cakes. He gets to be a TV chef. And the youngest kid gets to star in her own television sitcom. So I had great fun doing this. But the wishes don't last forever. They only last till sunset. And the children often find themselves in a pickle when sunset comes. Yeah, they seem to be getting in a lot of trouble with their parents as well with that. Are there there many similarities between the children in Four Children in It and those in Five Children in It? They're similar types of children in that I try and make them as realistic as possible and they get on each other's nerves. But mine are very modern children from a a sort of modern jigsaw family and they they find it quite hard to get along at times. And I think for, for children nowadays... They have different ideas about things. And yet sometimes, like my children, wish for wings so that they can fly. And E. Nesbitt's children did that too. That was one of my most favourite chapters in, in her book. And I also, for a bit of fun, have Rosalind, who loves reading and has read the E. Nesbitt version. She wishes to meet those children. So I have the kids meet up and I had such a wonderful time having... The Inesbit's children talking um, very colloquially, but um, in Edwardian slang, and ha- not having a clue why my girls were dressed in jeans, and they were sort of comparing all sorts of things. And although they got along well and had a lot in common, obviously Edwardian children haven't got a clue what a mobile phone is, or television, or anything that our children take for granted nowadays. Definitely, and it seems as well that in modernising this classic, you've managed to capture the original voice of the Samyad, the one consistent thing throughout it, between the two, really, really well. Was that a challenge for you? I adored writing about the Samyad. When my daughter was young, I read her Five Children and It, and I liked putting on all the funny voices and particularly liked doing the Samyad. And it was almost as if he still retained his entire personality and I didn't have to make him up. It was as if he wrote his own passages himself. And, of course, he would get even more perplexed and irritated by modern children and modern manners. And he 
particularly dislike Smash because she's so loud and full of herself. And uh, I just I adore writing about him. Yeah, and, and Smash is a great character, though. I think it's one that a lot of children maybe with problems with their parents may be able to relate to. And it seems like you've written each character of the children for someone to relate to out there of the similar age. Was that intended and was it hard to do that to get quite a mixture in there? I wanted to write about a whole group of children and to have them very different. I thought it would be a good idea to have as my narrator, Rosalind, who's very quiet and bookish and knows her way round all the puffing classics. And whereas Smash, her stepsister, thinks Rosalind is incredibly weedy and irritating and a swat. And so they get on each other's nerves like anything. But I wanted without making it too heavy and moral, the girls to grow to understand each other and to appreciate each other's qualities throughout the book. Yeah, and it really is a fantastic modernisation of it. And now just, just a fun question. Apart from Five Children and It, what other kind of classic would you like to modernise and you think could be brought to the modern-day audience? It's a lovely game, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I adore the book Valley Shoes and... The idea of writing about a modern stage school is very appealing. Another great favourite of mine is Little Women and it might be fun to write about four sisters. I'm, I'm particularly interested in sisters because I was an only child and always wanted a sister. I mean, I think there are all sorts of possibilities. Definitely. And just for our readers um, and fans of yourself, what is it that you're working on at the moment? I'm working hard on a book set in the 1950s about a kid stuck in hospital. So I am quite old, so I go way back to the 1950s. So I don't have to do too much research, but it is surprising how different life was then. Definitely. And just one last question. Why should people pick up Four Children in It? I hope they pick it up because it's a fun read, because you can identify with the children and it's fantastic seeing how all these different wishes work out. And by the end of the book, the children all somehow or other manage to get their heart's desire. Well, thank you very much, Jacqueline, for coming in today and speaking to us. Thank you. That was Jacqueline Wilson. Her latest book is out now. Next, we have an interview with Michelle Paver, followed by an extract from the audiobook edition of Gods and Warriors, which is out now. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we've got Michelle Paver in, who's going to be talking about her new book, Gods and Warriors, which is out on the 28th of August. First off, Michelle, could you just tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, well, Gods and Warriors, uh, that's the name of the series. It's also the name of the first book. There's going to be five of them. And... It takes place in prehistory, just like Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, but we've moved on a bit. It's three and a half thousand years ago. It's the Mediterranean. It's ancient Greece, the Bronze Age. And this is, you know, it's such an exotic, it's spectacular, dangerous world. We've got chariots and chieftains and magic and adventure. And it's the story of Hylas. He's 12 when the first book starts. He's a goat herd and he's a thief, the lowest of the low, but he's going to rise to become a hero and it's the story of Pyrrha. She's also 12. She's the daughter of the high priestess, so she's at the other end of the spectrum. She's unimaginably rich, because we're talking the Minoan civilization. but she's desperate to be free. And it's also the story of the three wild animals who, over the series, will become their best friends. I mean, Wolf Brother, of course, I, I wrote from a wolf's point of view, and throughout the series of Gods and Warriors, 
parts of the story are going to be told by a dolphin in book one and a falcon in later books and a lion. So, so there we are. So we're back in the ancient world and it's an adventure. I, I really want you to live and breathe the story of Hylas and Pyrrha and to find out what it's like to be a dolphin. And it's just, it's so well researched. When I was reading it, I really felt like I was right there in the Mediterranean Bronze Age. Can, can you actually tell us a bit about your research methods? Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously there's quite a lot of archaeological research and library research and things like that. What I try to do is I just try to, I want to do as much as possible of what the characters are going to do. So in the first book of Gods and Warriors, Hylas is going to make friends with a dolphin. So obviously I had to get to grips with the dolphin. <laughs> um, I couldn't obviously come up and sort of hug a, a wild dolphin. That would be rather irresponsible, <laughs> even if it wanted me to. But I went to Florida and, you know, you can get close to, to socialised dolphins there. And it, and it, see, the reason I do the research is that you always get surprises. You know, I've watched David Attenborough documentaries and all this sort of thing on dolphins. But when you get up right up close to a dolphin and it opens its mouth and goes, you know, this weird sound, but the sound doesn't come out of the mouth. It comes out of the top of its head, the blowhole. That in itself is really weird. So you're looking at this beautiful, very intelligent, sort of like an alien. It's, it's, there's something otherworldly about dolphins. And they've got this fixed smile, but it's not a smile. And then I went swimming with wild dolphins in the Azores. And there, you know, the water's very, very deep and you're snorkeling. And I'm not a very good snorkeler. And you know there are dolphins around because when you put your head under the water, you can hear the sort of zipping sort of clicks of their echolocation. But you'll only see one if it wants to come to you because you obviously have to keep a very long distance away. And then suddenly they move so fast. They hardly seem to be moving their tails. And suddenly, whoosh, there's a dolphin coming right past you, just looking at you and then sinking into this beautiful blue world. And that feeling of, oh, I want to go after it but I can't because it's not my world. That came, that was very, very strong. And again, this feeling of otherworldliness. They are literally in, in another world. And all of that really fed into Hylas's friendship with Spirit, the dolphin. Uh, and I, I couldn't have written it if I hadn't, hadn't been there. But the, but the thing about the research is, I mean, obviously there's much more, you know, scrambling around the, the mountains of Sparta because that's where Hylas's story starts and dodging wild boars, which was quite fun. But the thing about the research is, you, you know, you come back with mount I come back with mountains of notes, but then the difficult thing is you don't want to cram it all in because this, after all, is an adventure. It's, you know, the target readership is perhaps 10 to 12, but obviously older people as well read them. But, you know, it's an adventure. The story has to move along. So I, I do the research to just get those little bits that bring the story alive, that make the reader feel, I hope, that they're having the adventure. Oh, no, definitely. I, Great, I absolutely you. love those thank parts. You. <laughs> I really felt like I'd grown attached to him as well. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Excellent. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that, that kind of leads me to wonder what the research will be for the next couple of books. Well, we aren't giving too much away. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing book two at the moment, and... Let's just say that the Mediterranean is kind of like the volcano capital of Europe. <laughs> so volcanoes will feature in the story. So I, about a month ago, I went to Stromboli in Sicily and climbed that. That's quite a heavy-duty climb. Well, it certainly was for me. I mean, I'm over 50. And, you know, we had to wear helmets and things because it's actually erupting. You know, it's, it's an active volcano. Um, and we, we, we got to the top. Well, I won't say too much about it, but, you know, it was that was fairly amazing. And I've just come back from a Greek island sort of stumbling around the Mycenaean ruins there and 
yeah, it just helps. I mean, partly it helps because I'm getting away from distractions, <laughs> you know, the post, yeah. the phone, that sort of thing. It's quite intense, it sounds. It, yeah, and I'm, I'm with the characters. That's yeah. that's the really main thing is, you know, Hylas and Pyrrha, and there's, there's a lion cub in the second book, and they're with me. And so I, I can then feel, oh, yes, I'm in the story with them, so this is what's going to really affect them at this point, and this is how, you know, this amazing Mycenaean stronghold on the top of a hill, my goodness, that's going to be scary. So, yeah, it's good fun. I mean, I have to say, when I was reading it, it's just it's so adventurous and so exciting that um, every time I had to put it down, I felt kind of a bit disappointed with my real life. Um, not not that my life's not exciting, <laughs> but uh, it's not quite as exciting as that. And um, I was just wondering, did you, you know, once you'd finished the first book, and I'm, I'm sure you must have given yourself a little break, did you not kind of miss it a little bit? That's a really good question, but the nice, the lovely thing about writing a series when you're going to be going back to the same characters um, and seeing how they grow and develop over the five books, I mean, Hylas and Pyrrha go from 12 to about 15, it's not the same as writing a one-off book. When I finished my ghost story, Dark Matter, I felt bereft because I knew I wasn't going to see those characters again, you, you know, once you finish. Um, so that's why I'm not looking forward to book five of Gods and Warriors because that... But it's no, it's it's actually really nice. It's, it's um, I just felt oh thank goodness I've actually I'm actually really pleased with the first book of Gods and Warriors, but I've got books two, three, four, and five to come, and I've got piles of notes of ideas that I've had while I was writing book one, thinking ah now wait a minute when we get to book two when we get to Crete, or Keftiu as it's called in the story in, in book three that's what we can do you know so I've got all that to come. Which is rather nice. Yeah, that's nice. You can kind of stay with them for quite exactly. a while. Yeah, yeah. They haven't they haven't gone. And why do you think you like writing such adventurous books? It's one of the hardest questions to answer, actually, is why do you like writing something? And in a way, I'm, I don't want to sound dismissive, but I actually really don't care about the why of why I, I write. <laughs> All I care about is the fact that I do. Yeah. Um, and so it's only when you come to do interviews that you have to think of an answer. <laughs> think, now, why? why? Going back in my life, what is there about that? Yeah. So I might be completely wrong, but I was a tomboy when I was a kid. I used to read boys' books, the Willard Price adventure books, Lion Adventure, Amazon Adventure. I didn't know there were boys' books. I just thought, oh, this is the sort of thing I want to do. I think partly, you know, that writing is wish fulfilment in a way, which is for me. And when I was 10, you know, I would have loved to have a dolphin as a friend or a wolf and, and get really close to animals. I'd have liked a bit of magic and not to go to school and, <laughs> you know, be living on my own in the yeah. forest and being, you know, really, really tough. I mean, having said that, I put my characters through the ringer, so all the stress that they... <laughs> yeah. This is not easy for them. It's not easy. <laughs> I, I do like writing action, but I think if to make it really exciting, you have to care about the characters. And so it all comes from the characters. If you don't care what happens to Hylas and Pyrrha or Torak and Wren, it doesn't matter how much research and how much background you've done. So I actually really... That's at the core, and I really like taking characters and then seeing how they grow and throwing everything at them and seeing how they deal with it. Um, and that's where the adventure comes in. I think that's probably what makes it appeal to adults and children because essentially the characters are quite young in the book, mm, but, mm. you know, and they get to be kind of not going to school and, yeah. and thinking in one way about childish things, but at the other, they're so old for their age that, you know, I was relating to them so much, even though I'm like so many more years older than them. Well, that's a really good point, actually. Not many people have made that one, but... I think it's partly because that's why I like prehistory, because, you know, when you're a hunter-gatherer or you're a Bronze Age goat herd, you actually do have to grow up quicker. I mean, Pyrrha in this book, she's 12, 
but her mother, the high priestess, has just done a deal to give her away in marriage to someone she'd never met. Forced marriage. Well, yeah, it happened in the Bronze Age. I mean, Helen of Troy was probably about, they think, you know, between 12 and 14. You know, she was very, very young. It was a young society. So, yeah, you did have what we would regard as children having to face very tough things. And the other thing I would say is, is what's so great about this period and Gods and Warriors is that you find that because you've got gods and goddesses and things, amazingly big themes like fate and free will, you know, and determinism just emerge. And okay, yes, this is an adventure story for children, but on another level, you know, we've already got it in the first book that Telamon, Hylas's friend, you know, he's starting to feel, well, you know, actually I'm just a plaything of the gods, which is kind of a let-off for him because I think, well, whatever I do, then, yeah. you know, it's not my fault. Whereas Hylas is the other end of the spectrum. You know, he's just, no, it's up to me what I do and I make my own mistakes. So it's really fun when you find that all these these big themes and without wanting to be self-aggrandizing, you know, the sort of things <laughs> that come out in Homer, <laughs> I think, ah, this is why, you know, and it's, yeah. so it's, you know, that old cliche on many levels, but it is, it is fun and that's because they're children in a sense and you have to remember that but they are dealing with really big things because this is the Bronze Age. And um, what sort of books did you like reading when you were younger? Well as I said you know I think two main kinds of books because I was a tomboy I loved adventure stories so sadly you know there didn't seem to be that many stories with girls in that I would have liked to have been if you see what I mean you know that the girls books were sort of this is in the 60s it was sort of you know, school stories and ballet stories, and I just, there was nothing that I, I found there. But the boys' books, <laughs> you know, the Willard Price adventure stories, lots of animals. It's not terribly politically correct now, I suppose, but, you know, they, they were very well-researched. You know, Willard Price used to go around the world, and, and he, his facts were accurate at the time, and I loved those. And then the other kind of books that I absolutely loved were the, were the myths and the legends. You know, Roger Lancel and Green's fantastic retelling The, the Tale of Troy, and the, the myths of the Vikings, the Norsemen. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I think, again, looking back, you know, there's some pretty feisty goddesses in there. They're grown-up stories, you know, they're myths and legends, and, and there's a reason why they've lasted so long, because they're very powerful, and they, they dramatise one's deepest fears. So I loved that. I thought they were great. I think I must have been quite bloodthirsty, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but then a lot of children are. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. And we're going to be hearing an extract from the audiobook edition at the end of this interview. And I know you're involved uh, with the production. As an author, what is it like kind of being involved with that and, and hearing your work read by someone else? Well, it's uh, it's always very scary when you when you see the actor reading for the first time. I mean, I should say, I, I'm sorry, it sounds so bossy. You know, I've been to every single one of the recordings, but I have. <laughs> I because know, my excuse is that, you know, I can help with pronunciation or whatever. But it's also because it's nice for me, you know, because if you have a good actor reading the story, it does add something, uh, you know, and you'll, you'll, I mean, Ian McKellen read The Chronicles of Ancient Darkness and, and sometimes you think, oh, I never thought of it like that. The way he, he gives it a twist and everything. Toby Stevens, when he, you know, we, I'd heard, you know, I, I know you, you helped me sort of listen to various excerpts of various different people and, you know, we needed a voice who, who can do the youth of Hylas and Pyrrha, but can also do the, you know, the quite strange, serious bits when, you know, we're getting close to the goddess and then the dolphin is very dolphiny and strange. And I was quite nervous because you don't know until, and I don't know what would happen if I thought, oh God, you know, total crap. Because <laughs> 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 you've already, you know, engaged the actor, but he just did such a brilliant job. And then it's just great fun. 
I, I think I was able to do a few. I think I helped by doing a few bird impressions. <laughs> he didn't know what a, didn't know what a hoopoo sounded like, and so I was able to do a hoopoo impression and various others. So I think I helped in that respect. But apart from that, I'm just the audience, you know, and I try to keep it backseat. And you know, I certainly don't give direction or anything like that. That's the director. It's just it's just great fun, and it helps because I'm then moving on to the next episode of the story, and that keeps it alive in in my head. Excellent. Like a nice little refresher course. It is. It <laughs> absolutely is. And I don't have to do anything. I just sit there and, and watch a, a really good actor just, just reading my story. Well, I know I'm certainly really looking forward to the second book. So, you know, if you could just hurry that along. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they take an amazingly long time to write, actually. Yes, yeah, like I can imagine, especially mm. with all the research and It, it does. And, and I think it was John D. MacDonald said, easy reading is damned hard writing. <laughs> yeah. and, and that is so true. It really is. I can imagine. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Really looking forward to this coming out in August. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. The shaft of the arrow was black and fletched with crow feathers, but Hylas couldn't see the head because it was buried in his arm. Clutching it to stop it wobbling, he scrambled down the slope. No time to pull it out. The black warriors could be anywhere. He was ragingly thirsty and so tired he couldn't think straight. The sun beat down on him and the thorn scrub gave no cover. He felt horribly exposed. But even worse was the worry over Issy and the aching disbelief about Scram. He found the trail that led down the mountain and halted, gasping for breath. The rasp of the crickets was loud in his ears. The cry of a falcon echoed through the gorge. No sound of pursuit. Had he really shaken them off? He still couldn't take it in. Last night he and Issy had made camp in a cave below the western peak. Now his sister was missing, his dog was dead, and he was running for his life. A skinny boy with no clothes and no knife. All he had was a grimy little amulet on a thong round his neck. His arm hurt savagely. Holding the arrow shaft steady, he staggered to the edge of the trail. Pebbles rattled down to the river, dizzyingly far below. The gorge was so steep that his toes were level with the heads of pine trees. Before him, the Lyconian mountains marched off into the distance, and behind him loomed the mightiest of them all. Mount Lycas, its peaks ablaze with snow. He thought of the village further down the gorge, and of his friend Telamon, in the chieftain's stronghold on the other side of the mountain. Had the black warriors burnt the village and attacked Lapithos? But then, why couldn't he see smoke or hear the ram's horns sounding the alarm? Why weren't the chieftain and his men fighting back? The pain in his arm was all-consuming. He couldn't put it off any longer. He picked a handful of thyme, then snapped off a furry grey leaf of giant mullen for a bandage. The leaf was as thick and soft as a dog's ears. He scowled. Don't think about Scram. They'd been together just before the attack. Scram had leant against him, his shaggy coat matted with burrs. Hylas had picked out a couple, then pushed Scram's muzzle aside and told him to watch the goats. Scram had ambled off, swinging his tail and glancing back at him as if to say, I know what to do. I'm a goat hound. That's what I'm for. Don't think about him, Hylas told himself fiercely. 
Setting his teeth, he gripped the arrow shaft. He sucked in his breath. He pulled. The pain was so bad he nearly passed out. Biting his lips, he rocked back and forth, fighting the sickening red waves. Scram, where are you? Why can't you come and lick it better? Grimacing, he crushed the thyme and clamped it to the wound. It was a struggle to bandage it with a mullen leaf, one-handed, but at last he managed, tying it in place with a twist of grass that he tightened with his teeth. The arrowhead lay in the dust where he dropped it. It was shaped like a poplar leaf with a vicious, tapered point. He'd never seen one like it. In the mountains, people made arrowheads of flint, or if they were rich, of bronze. This was different. It was shiny black obsidian. Hylas only recognized it because the village wise woman possessed a shard. She said it was the blood of the mother spewed from the earth's fiery guts and turned to stone. She said it came from islands far across the sea. Who were the black warriors? Why were they after him? He hadn't done anything. And had they found Issy? Behind him, Rock doves exploded into the sky with a whirring of wings. He spun round. From where he stood, the trail descended steeply, then disappeared round a spur. Behind the spur, a cloud of red dust was rising. Hylas caught the thud of many feet and the rattle of arrows in quivers. His belly turned over. They were back. He scrambled over the edge of the trail grabbed a sapling and clung like a bat. The pounding feet came nearer. Scrabbling with his toes, he found a ledge. He edged sideways beneath an overhang. His face was jammed against a tree root. He glanced down and wished he hadn't. All he could see was a dizzying view of treetops. The warriors came on at a punishing run. He caught the creak of leather and the rank smell of sweat, and a strange, bitter tang that was horribly familiar. He'd smelt it last night. The warrior's skin was smeared with ash. The overhang hid him from view, but to his left the trail curved round and jutted over the gorge. He heard them run past. Then they rounded the bend, and through a haze of red dust he saw them. A nightmare of stiff black rawhide armour, a thicket of spears and daggers and bows, their long black cloaks flew behind them like the wings of crows, and beneath their helmets their faces were grey with ash. A man called out terrifyingly close. Hyla stopped breathing. The warrior who'd shouted was directly above him. Further up the trail, the others wheeled round and moved down again towards him. He heard the crunch of pebbles as a man came walking back, his pace was unhurried. Hylas guessed this was the leader, and his armour made a strange, hard clink. Look, said the first man. Blood. Hylas went cold. Blood? You left blood on the trail? He waited. The leader made no reply. This seemed to rattle the first man. Probably just the goat herds, he said hastily. Sorry, you wanted him alive. Still no reply. 
Sweat streamed down Hylas's flanks. With a jolt, he remembered the arrowhead left lying in the dust. He prayed they wouldn't spot it. Craning his neck, he saw a man's hand grasp a boulder on the edge of the trail. It was a strong hand, but it didn't look alive. The flesh was smeared with ash, the fingernails stained black. The wrist guard that covered the forearm was the dark red of an angry sunset, and so bright that it hurt to look. Hylas knew what it was, though he'd never seen it this close. Bronze. Dust trickled into his eyes. He hardly dared blink. The two men were so near he could hear them breathe. Get rid of it, said the leader. His voice sounded hollow. It made Hylas think of cold places beyond the reach of the sun. Something heavy pitched over the edge, narrowly missing him. It crashed into a thorn tree an arm's length away and swayed to rest. Hylas saw what it was and nearly threw up. It had once been a boy, but now it was a terrible thing of black blood and burst blue innards like a nest of worms. Hylas knew him, Skiros. Not a friend, but a goat herd, like him. A few years older and ruthless in a fight. The corpse was too close. He could almost touch it. He sensed the angry ghost fighting to break free. If it found him, if it slipped down his throat. That's the last of them, said the first man. What about the girl? said the leader. Hylas's belly tightened. She doesn't matter, does she? said the other man. She's only a... And the other boy? The one who ran off. I winged him. He won't get far. Then this is not the last of them, the leader said coldly. Not while that other boy remains alive. No, said the other man. He sounded scared. Pebbles crunched as they started up the trail. Hylas willed them to keep going. At the bend where the trail jutted, the leader stopped. He put his foot on a rock. He leant over to take another look. What Hylas saw did not resemble a man, but a monster of darkness and bronze. Bronze greaves covered his powerful shins, and a carapace of bronze overlaid his short black rawhide kilt. His breast was hammered bronze, surmounted by bronze shoulder guards of fearsome breadth. He had no face just an eye-slit between a high bronze throat guard masking nose and mouth and a black painted helmet made of scales sliced from the tusks of boars with bronze cheek guards and a crest of black horsetail. Only his hair showed that he was human. It hung below his shoulders, braided in the snake-like locks of a warrior, each one thick enough to turn a blade. Hylas knew the leader might sense his gaze, but he couldn't look away. He just had to keep watching the slit in that armoured head, knowing those unseen eyes were raking the slopes to find him. For a moment, the head turned to scan upriver. Do something, Hylas told himself. Distract him. If he looks back and sees you. Bracing himself on the ledge, Hylas silently let go of the sapling with one hand and reached for the thorn tree where the body of Skiros hung. He gave it a push. The corpse shuddered as if it didn't like being touched. 
The armoured head was turning back. At full stretch, Hylas gave another push. Skiros fell, rolling and bouncing down the gorge. Look, chuckled one of the warriors. It's getting away. A ripple of laughter from the others. Nothing from the leader. The helmeted head watched the boy's body crash to the bottom and then withdrew. Blinking sweat from his eyes, Hylas listened to their footsteps recede as they headed up the trail. The sapling was beginning to give under his weight. He grabbed a tree root. He missed. That was an extract from the audiobook edition of Gods and Warriors, read by the actor Toby Stevens. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit the website at penguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.